and said, My little girl, has mother not taught you many times that you need never be afraid, that God is always near and nothing can harm you? The little one put her arms around her mother's neck and said, Yes, Mama, I know that God is always near. But when the lightning and thunder are so awful, I want someone near me what's got skin on them. Well, in our passage this morning here, the writer to the Hebrews, he's not talking about some pie-in-the-sky thing so far removed from us that we cannot possibly grasp. He is talking about someone who came to us who's got skin on and the one who is our high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. He is the one who's come to, to show himself to us as a sympathetic high priest, though absent for now from us, but yet still is intimately connected very much with the concerns and struggles and trials that his people encounter. Let me ask you, This morning, as we consider a passage that's not all that complicated to understand. It really is very simple. It's actually one of the more straightforward sections in the entirety of the book of Hebrews. Let me ask you, to whom do you turn when the miseries of this life rear their ugly head? What do you do? Maybe you find your solution at the bottom of a bottle. It's not there. Maybe you find your solution in pills and tablets and all sorts of other things. You're not going to find the solution to the miseries of this life in those places either. Maybe it's through other forms of addiction. Maybe it's through other forms and in ways, whatever it is. I certainly do not know and cannot know all the struggles that concern many of you. I know some of them, of course. I share them. Some of you who struggle with significant physical and chronic pain. Does this have to do with Jesus? Does it matter to him? Some of you who have significant relational issues, family issues, marital issues. Does this have to do with Jesus? Does it matter? Does he care? Well, he does, like you I, too, am living in this world that has been subjected to the fall. I'm painfully aware of what that looks like. I live here with you. I'm not above you. I'm not beneath you. I am with you in the struggle that we all experience. uh, And I sympathize with you, but not like this one. Not like this one. Not like your sympathetic high priest He understands that every day of your lives as Christians, it's a siege, it seems, against the world, the flesh, the devil, the enemy of your souls. Is this where you go? Is this where you turn? You look to him. You cry out to him for help in your time of need. Do you behold something of who this one is, the God-man, the incarnate Savior who now has ascended, gone through the heavens? He's still there with the same self-same body he had when he was raised from the dead. He still has that, that body that you have, but glorified. He's still there. He's mediating for you. He's interceding for you. Where else are you going to find the true hope and help that you need except in Christ as he displays that glory as the priest 
of his redeemed people. Some people think, well, I know the words. I see them here in this passage. I I get it. But, you know, it would be a whole lot better for me, I think, if he'd just come down from heaven, sit down with me on my couch, wrap his arm around me, as it were, give me a big hug, cry with me, weep with me. If he could do all of that, then, then I would be more comforted, I think. I would be more assured of his love for me of his labors for me as a priest. Well, he is absent, isn't he? Bodily. He's given you his spirit. He said it himself. He told his disciples that it's better for you that I leave this place, that I can send you my spirit. It doesn't make any sense to us in our ears. We think, what, what good was that? You know, a, 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 a family member that we love and adore, and they visit us once every two years, and they come, and they, they, we enjoy great fellowship, and, and they, for them to tell me as they're leaving, tell you as they're leaving, oh, it's better if I leave, You're, you think they're nuts. But it was better. Because this high priest sent his spirit that he might always be present with you. Day and night, whatever comes, whatever circumstance, whatever issue there is, he is always, that spirit is always pointing you to this kind Savior, this high priest who knows, knows intimately at the deepest level your plight in the world, who alone can truly give you the grace you need, the mercy that you seek in times of struggle. To see the glory of Christ, you must see Him then as a sympathetic high priest. You must see Him as the sympathetic high priest. Not just one going through the motions in the tabernacle and, and doing the, the, the responsibilities of a priest and, and then that once a year routine in which he would go into the Holy of Holies. No, no. You must see a sympathetic high priest, one who is sympathetic, infinitely so, and for you because he experienced what you experienced. He knows himself what it is like to live in a sin-wrecked world under the same effects of sin in the world, but he immune to one thing you and I are not immune to, and that is the, the sin nature that causes us great trouble often. The writer of the Hebrews here, he wants to turn people away. Never mind the old, taber- old tabernacle system. You, you don't want to go back there. Never mind all of that. Those were just pictures. They pointed the way forward to this sympathetic high priest. That's why you don't need a priest, by the way. Sorry, Rome. You don't. I have one. He trumps every priest Rome could ever pump out, and then some. I have one mediator, the mediator between God and men. He's right here in this passage. He's the sympathetic high priest, and I want to show you the glory of 
this high priest this morning. Through a simple description of him, you'll notice that's italicized in your bulletin, a description of him and the benefits that flow from him. I want to show you this sympathetic high priest. I want to show you his glory, the glorious nature of this sympathetic high priest by describing or by describing him, his labor, his work, who he is, and the benefits that flow from him. Two points as we consider him together this morning. First, the description of the high priest. And then second, the benefits from your high priest. The description and the benefits as we labor to see Christ in his glory as the high priest, the final priest, the only priest you'll ever need. Let's first consider this description that is given to us by the writer to the Hebrews. He simply begins there, since then. He's, he connects this, and it's difficult to know exactly where he's drawing the connection. But he does, he connects it to things that he has said previously. Of course, he, he's preaching a sermon, and functionally this is a sermon. We don't know who wrote it. You can guess all you want. The Holy Spirit did not tell you, so don't worry about it. Whoever it is, whether it was Apollos or Paul or Luke, it's inspired. It's God's word to you. Since then, he says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You think, well, he just read that now twice. Why? Did you listen? Did you hear the emphasis? The first thing that you should see here in this passage is, is, is something I've labored to teach you multiple times as I've labored here for over three years as you learn to study your Bible is you need to pay attention. And sometimes those small words in the text will tell you a lot. And what are they telling us? They're telling us that he is your high priest. Look at the pronouns. The pronouns that are there, this requirement that is necessary, the pronouns that are given to us in this passage. In verse 14, we've got we. In verse 14, again, we've got us. In verse 15, we have we. Again, our, we, us, we. All these pronouns are driving us to possession. We possess him. And he us. He's yours. He belongs to you. The writer of the Hebrews is saying that to these people. Not Aaron. Not his sons. This one. He is the one who belongs to you. But you see, there's a requirement, isn't there? And it doesn't come automatically. 
It didn't come just because he wrote it. He's obviously preaching. He's writing to the visible church as I'm preaching to the visible church here in this room. I don't know what your eternal destiny is. I, I, I have some sense, I guess some, some, maybe some understanding, certainly not infallible understanding of it. The requirement then, therefore, is if this passage is even about you, if this priest is really your high priest, if you, you must know him. In other words, you must have laid hope, laid claim to the hope that comes from him. You must have seen, you must know your desperate state. Where are you in the world? Where do you stand before a holy God? If, he was to, if your life was to end right this very second, would you be able to stand before him and claim this high priest as yours? And then plead his blood for your soul's sake. You see, if you can't say that, friends, he is not your priest. He doesn't belong to you. You see, the priest of old would, would go into the tabernacle. They would, they would minister at the altar for the visible church of God's people. They would go into the tabernacle. They would do their business. And that once a year, they would go into the, that holy of holies. Not for just anybody. Not for some random blob of Philistine. No, no. For the Israel of God. You must know him. You must trust him. Maybe you're sitting here this morning. Maybe you've heard the same old story, the old, old story. You've heard it many times in your lives. You've heard the gospel, and you're, you're 10, and you think, well, you know, I've got plenty of time. It doesn't matter. I'll do this later. Mm-hmm. Later may never come. Today could be later. Maybe you're 75, and you haven't done it yet. Because you, when you were 10, said, I'll do it later. What are you waiting for? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to read this passage in a way you've never read it before. Where you can see yourself right here. He is my high priest. And I am his child. You see, it brings a great comfort to those of us who know Christ. Because what it does is it strips all the ability from us. We can't do any of this. If we could, we wouldn't need a sympathetic high priest. We wouldn't need someone to offer sacrifices on our behalf. If we could accomplish this on our own, we wouldn't need Jesus, you see. We wouldn't need him as prophet. We wouldn't need him as priest. We wouldn't need him as king. We wouldn't need him at all. Uh, But we do. And you know that if you've placed your hope in him. And it brings then, therefore, a certain degree of comfort because if, in fact, you've placed your trust in Christ, he is yours. He belongs to you. He is your high priest. He is ministering for you right this moment. He is doing it. Whether you can see him or not, doesn't matter. He is. He loves his people, and he continually, daily, minute by minute, moment by moment, is pleading before the throne of grace for you. What is it McShane said? Yes, wouldn't it be great if I could hear Jesus praying for me in another room right across the... And in this building, it wouldn't be hard. You could go downstairs in the bathroom and probably hear him because this room, this building, you can hear everything everywhere. But it really doesn't matter whether I can or can't hear him. Brothers and sisters, he is. He is praying for you. 
There is not a day that goes by that he is not mindful of you. Why? Because you've placed your hope in him. That's it. You trust him. That's it. He's yours. You are his. What greater comfort comes in a world so wrecked by sin than to read this passage with eyes of one who sees that this Savior, this priest, he's mine. And I can go to him whenever. And he'll always hear me. He'll always labor for me. He understands me like nobody else in this world will ever understand me. Not my wife, not my kids, not you. He does. And I can unburden my soul right with him. Is he yours? You can say that with confidence this morning under the authority of the Word of God that if you were to die today and stand before the God of heaven, you can claim with absolute sincerity, He's my high priest. And because of that, I'm your child. If you can't say that, then the solution is, I'm sorry, it's simple. Maybe this is what causes people so much trouble other than their hard hearts. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me. I am weak and miserable person, and I need a Savior. Without Him, I have no hope in the world. Well, second, not only is He your priest, as the writer puts it to us, He's a greater priest. He's a greater priest. He says as much. We refer to Christ in this prophetic, in this priestly office as the great high priest, and we do that with intention. It's not, uh, it's not um, simply an adjective, although it is that. We do that to separate him out of, away from uh, the picture of the Old Testament. Nowhere will you find in Scripture that Aaron is called the great high priest. Nowhere in Scripture will you find his sons, the great high priest, only here. Yes, of course, in the Old Testament economy, there was one priest in the days of old, the priests that were called from the tribe of Levi. They served on behalf of men to offer gifts and sacrifices for men, but, but not only for, for others, if you go just one chapter over into chapter 5 and verses 1 through 3, the writer continues this entire argument. And he says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To do what? What's their function? And to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, this is the earthly priest. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Hmm. You mean Aaron? Yes, Aaron. You mean his sons after him? Yes. How about Nadab and Abihu? What about those guys? Weakness? Great weakness. Dead. Beset with weaknesses. Because of this, then, therefore, he is obligated. That's Aaron, his sons, all of these Old Testament priests. They are obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. 
just as he does for the sins of the people. But Jesus is greater than them. They picture him, but he is greater than them. He is greater than them because, one, he has no weakness as the God-man. He always deals gently with his people. In the wayward, he did not have to offer gifts and sacrifices for himself. For he had no sin by which atonement need to be made. He had no need of a Savior. He has no need of a Savior now because he is the Savior. All that the Old Testament priesthood was designed to do in simplicity, uh, biblically, theologically simple, is to show you and me Christ. Without the book of Hebrews, you would have a hard time connecting these dots. He's greater. He's greater in that his sacrifice was laid down once for all, not repeated over and over and over again. Again, sorry, Rome. He is greater than any earthly priest could ever be. He's yours, he's greater, he's living. Third, what use is a dead priest? When Aaron died, the next in line took over. And when he died, the next in line took over. They all died, those priests. They all went to the tomb, and they stayed there. But this one didn't. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that he has gone through or passed through the heavens. Now, this is a very charged statement and probably more worthy of a Sunday school class, but it does highlight for us very simply that he is alive. Aaron died, and he stayed dead. Nadab and Abihu, wicked as they were, died. They stayed dead. All the priests before this high priest died. Their bodies rotting in a tomb. What happened to this one? Oh, he died. Indeed. Absolutely. He didn't stay that way. Three days later, he was raised from that tomb. He was resurrected. In his glorious body, some days after that, he ascends to his father. That's the whole imagery of he passed through the heavens. That's the imagery he's giving here. But he's pressing home for us that your high priest, he's not dead. He's very much alive and he's very much working, very much acting. Ever since he said it is finished and entrusted himself to his father, was raised from that grave, that tomb, that borrowed tomb. He has been working and laboring on behalf of his people. Fourth, not only is he very much alive, but he's very unique. 
He is both human and divine. It's subtle, but it's there in the text as you read in verse 14, He who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, we get that, we know what that is, the Son of God, he adds. Why didn't the writer just chop it off at Jesus? Why didn't he just leave it there? Would it have really changed anything? Yes. Why didn't he just say, the Son of God passed through the heavens? Would it have changed anything? Yes, it would have dramatically changed things. He was given an earthly name. We know what that name is. It's Jesus. It's here. It highlights for us that earthly position, that incarnated state, that which he took to himself as the God, as the eternal God who descended to our miserable estate, that he might minister for us, mediate for us, that he might serve us at the altar, if you will, in the tabernacle, he being the very tabernacle of God. But his name is Jesus. Why is that? Why was he called that? Well, our catechisms help us, but... More to the point, so does Matthew chapter 1. He will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. How does he do this? As a man. Like you and me, two eyes, two ears, a mouth, a nose, two legs, two arms, tall, short, I do not know. How much he weighed is irrelevant He did it with skin on. The God of heaven descended to you. He came to where you are. In the days of old, the priests would wait there at the altar. They would stand there with all their furnishings and their garb and the dress that they were commanded to wear. And what would they do? They would wait for who? You to come bring your sacrifice But on the Day of Atonement, they would go to God through the veil into the most holy place where God is. He came and took to himself the very same skin, flesh, that you have. He's not superhuman. These ancient heresies are important to know. Jesus is not some superhuman. He is a man just like you. One difference. He didn't have a sin nature. That's the other side of what the writer is saying. Because if he doesn't say this part, and if it's not true, if he isn't indeed the Son of God then he cannot be my great high priest. He's a great man, a wonderful prophet, a good teacher, wows the crowds, can do really interesting things, uh, but he's not God, and therefore he cannot be my high priest. He cannot save me. That's the other side. 
The divine name is given here intentionally and deliberately. The Son of God, the eternal God, the great I Am, the one who spoke to Moses at the burning bush. He is the one who spoke to Joshua as the commander of the armies of the Lord. He is the one who existed eternally with God, coexistent, co-eternal with the Father. He is the one who covenanted in eternity past before there was anything to think of anything covenanted with the other members of the eternal Godhead to come and take himself humanity, that he might be your high priest, that he might save you, that he might sympathize with you, that he might accomplish what you could never, ever do in a million lifetimes. You see, it's important that the writer spells out both sides of this great high priest To know and see the glory then, therefore, of a God who would descend to sinners and act as mediator, as priest for them. And who are we that he would do such a thing? Who are we that he would even be mindful of us? But he was. A billion years, if you'll permit me, because I'm trying to describe the eternality of God using time language, which is impossible, as you understand. But go with me. Work with me here. A billion years ago, God was mindful of you. How do you comprehend that? Mindful of our sin. And he came not just as God, not just as a man, but God who took upon himself humanity, that he might rescue us, that he might be my priest, the final priest, the only priest I'll ever need, one who is not only human and divine, but one, as the text tells us, and he could have gone anywhere with this. But he zeroes in, on this sympathy that he gives. A sympathetic priest in verse 15, it tells us as much, doesn't it? I mean, again, it's just right there. Our problem is we read too quickly. We don't think too deeply. We all want people to sympathize with us about things. We all have had that experience in our lives where we want people to sympathize with the circumstances that we find ourselves. The writer of the Hebrews puts the phrase, however, here in negative terms. He doesn't put it in positive terms. Notice it's in the negative. He says to you who have trusted this high priest, he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. There is no problem for him to sympathize with whatever you are experiencing. Maybe you're the only one in this room that knows it, but you're not. I may not know, but I know the Lord does. I know this high priest does. I guarantee he does because he is able. He is able to to see into the deepest recesses of what burdens you, the deepest recesses of your heart, the the closets you won't open up to your pastor or your elders. But guess what? They're not closed to him. And he knows. 
He gets it. He understands it. What is it to sympathize? What does it even mean to sympathize? I was thinking as I was writing this one point, and it's again providential. Um, someone's here to it corrected me in the Sunday school class. I had the de- definitions reversed, and I did. Okay. What does it mean to sympathize with someone? Literally, the word used by the writer here means to sh- of a sh- a showing a, a disposition to help because of a fellow feeling. I'm always laboring, I'm always lecturing you about grammar. There's a difference between belief and feeling. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I don't feel that he's the Son of God. But here the writer is talking about a feeling. Emotions. He's talking about the things that we we understand deeply. Is to be compassionate then, therefore. To sympathize is more than just saying, hey, I understand how you feel. See ya. No. It's more than that, isn't it? A sympathetic ear, what? Listens. A sympathetic person helps if possible. But there's no barrier for this sympathetic priest. He is able to listen to the utmost Whatever concerns you, it doesn't matter if you're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying, and I'm praying, and then millions of other people are praying, he hears you as though you're the only one talking to him. Explain that. I can. He's the God-man. That's why. And he knows, even with words we can't even express. Have you ever had that time, an experience where, where the words just don't come? You can't get them out. You know what they are, but they don't come. But he knows uh, what they are. It's a feeling of pity or compassion towards someone else. It's an understanding, a common feeling expressed towards someone else. And Jesus Christ can sympathize. And he does. Why, 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 why is he able to sympathize? And what is it that he sympathizes with? Just generally speaking. Well, first, he sympathizes with your sin. You might think, well, that's crazy. He, he had no sin. No, but he was under the effects of it. He suffered under the effects of sin in this world. He got hungry. Tired, weary, I think sometimes he got discouraged as he looked around the world and saw the way that sin had wrecked the very world that he made perfect and good. I don't know if the word discouraged is the best word to use there, but I think you know what I mean. He certainly had a great deal of compassion on people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He looked into the mess of the world that sin has caused, and he understood it. He felt it deeply, more deeply than you will ever feel it, more deeply than I ever will. And because of that, he knows as one who struggled under the weight of sin in the world, as he was mocked and scorned and picked on and treated wrongly and executed and forced to carry his own cross and had a crown of thorns dropped on his head, pressed on his head, nails driven through his hands, wrists, whatever it was. Do you don't think he is able to sympathize with whatever it is that's, that's tormenting your soul? 
as he prayed in that garden at Gethsemane, my father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, your will. As he sweated, as it were, drops of blood. It wasn't actually drops of blood. It was as like drops of blood. You don't think he knew, understood what he was facing, the infinite wrath of God that was about to be poured out on him for you? He can't sympathize with your problems? Perish the thought. Because if he is not able, then show me somebody who is. Because this world is awfully difficult and it's awfully hard most of the time. And I need somebody else who can sympathize with my struggles. The God-man does. Every single time perfectly. You show me a person who can do that. No pastor on this planet is able. No elder on this planet is able. No deacon, no church member, no friend, no parent, no spouse, no grandparents. No one is able to sympathize with the struggles you have in this world other than Jesus Christ. And that is to whom you must run whenever you struggle. You must go there. Sin is an awful thing. And so is a struggle. The struggle that flows naturally out of it. He who lived in a fallen world, who experienced the pains and sufferings of living in this fallen place, got tired, he got weak, and all the things that I've said, he mourned, he grieved, he wept bitter tears at the death of a friend. He was tempted at the hands of the evil one. He knows what it's like to experience all of these things, all the temptations that you and I experience. He poured out his soul unto death because of that which sin did to you. And he continues this very moment, right now, today. His priesthood didn't end at his ascension. It continues. As he, the sympathetic one who was able to deal gently with our weaknesses and our ignorance and our stupidity, and let's face it, we're often stupid, He who went into the most holy place through the heavens is there in that holy place right now communing with His Father and there He will remain ministering for you, sympathizing with you until He is ready to come get you. He's a sympathetic priest. He's not just an ordinary priest priest. Aaron failed in this. His sons failed in this. All the other priests after them failed in this. Pastors fail in this. Elders fail in this. Friends fail in this. Jesus Christ does not ever fail to sympathize with your weaknesses. So what benefits then? If those aren't enough, I could stop right now. Maybe you wish I would. What are the benefits? Because of who this high priest is and did, you can draw comfort in the Christian life. Oh yes, days are difficult, I know. Times are hard, I get it. Things are difficult around us. I live in the world, too. But I can still draw comfort. I can still draw hope 
from Him. These benefits are the outworking, really, of the labor of this great high priest. And the writer to the Hebrews sets them before you first with two exhortations. There's two of them in the passage. He doesn't do them in a way that would be, well, neat. He mingles them in to the arguments. The first one has to do much with our attitude. Hold on, he says, to your confession. He's not writing to a people that are singing Duda on the beach of Israel. He's writing to a people that live in the world. That had the same struggles you have. There's nothing new under the sun. And he says to them, because of this great high priest, this sympathetic high priest that is very much alive, that is laboring for you, you hold on to your confession. Now you read that and you think, well, well what does that even mean? What, is that, what does that mean? Well, it means that you must hold firmly to the profession you made and trust you placed in Christ. When will that be tested? In hard times? In struggle? In trial? What do you think Abraham thought when God came along and said, Hey, buddy, take your son, that promised son, the one I promised you, and you waited around for hundred, you know, for years, not hundreds, but years and years and years to get, and now you've got, and, oh, take him up the mountain, and I want you to kill him. I know what I would have thought. Different religion time. No, no, that's not what Abraham does. He holds on to his confession. What? What confession? The promises? All that he's been offered? All that he's been told? That confession that he's placed his trust and his hope in the God of heaven? It was that which he said, I, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? You profess faith in Christ this morning? You answer that question in your own head. I love Jesus, you're saying. You're going to take this table here in a few minutes. You're going to make it public in a minute. You pick up one of those elements, you are saying you're a Christian. Okay, good. Rejoice, hallelujah. Are you holding on? Are you holding on? When I was a boy, I, I rode my first roller coaster ride. It was called the Jackrabbit. It was 60 miles an hour off that first hill, and I was five. And I couldn't wait to go on there because that was me, you know, ready, aim, shoot, or ready, shoot, aim. That, that was me. I didn't know what I was in for. All I know is that when we got to the top of that hill, here's what I said to my aunt. Get me off. I want off. Panicked. Let me tell you something. I held on all right. I held on with everything I had because I thought I was going to die. You have to hold on like that. You hold on. You hold on. You grab a hold of Christ and His promises and His priestly work for you, and you hold on with both hands. He's not let you fly off that roller coaster. He's not going to let you die. He's not going to lose you. 
The story is told of a one young woman who was at work, a young Christian woman who once said how, how a colleague at her job had often belittled Christianity as an escape from the difficulties of real life. An easy route chosen by the weak. You betcha. I'm weak. That's why the writer of the Hebrews tells me to hang on. Hang on to what? Hang on to who? Uh, tell me and I'll hang on. Well, it goes on. And escape, she replied. You try to live as a Christian. You try to wage war against the desires of the flesh. You try to live as an alien, a strange land, and then you come and tell me that Christianity is the easy way. Brothers and sisters, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. The Christian life is hard. Why? Because you're an alien in this world. You're a stranger. You don't belong here. The world doesn't want you either. Regardless of what they tell you to your face, you got to hold on. You got to hold on. You hold on to that which you have trusted. You hold on to that which God has promised to you. You must hold on to Christ, the Savior, the High Priest. You must hold on to all that Christ has said. You must hold firm to the work of the great High Priest who conquered death and the grave and sympathizes with your weakness. Frankly, Christian, what else is there in the world turned upside down by sin to do? What else can you hold on to that will have any stability at all? The world will tell you about all sorts of things that will give you supposed stability. Only this High Priest can give it. Only He can do it. You profess faith in Christ, you hold on to Him. Sickness is going to happen. Troubles in this life, they're going to come. Disease may even ravage you. Strife, struggle, temptations, trials, it's all going to come to the Christian, but you must hold on to Christ. To abandon Him is to experience far worse than anything horrible, any horrible thing that this world might try to offer. But here's the other side of that. The writer doesn't say it, but we know the Bible teaches it. You hold on to Christ. Why? Because he's holding on to you. And he is not going to let you go. You may wander off the reservation for a season. You may go off the deep end every now and then. You may lose your mind. But Jesus is going to keep holding on to you. No one can pluck you from his Father's hand. You're safe, you're secure by virtue of the work of this high priest who offered himself for you. That's the attitude that you must have every day. I'm going to hold on. I'm holding on. Some days it's easier than others, isn't it? Some days it's just awfully hard. You hold on. But how? How do you hold on? With confidence. With confidence. Some translations say with boldness, with confidence. Confidence in who? Confidence in what? You? Yourself? No. Uh uh. Your talents? Your degree? Your practice? Your marriage? Your relate? No, none of that. No, no. Your confidence isn't in any of those things. It resides in the finished work of the great high priest. Your confidence resides in that which he who has passed through the heavens did and is doing, mediating on your behalf. 
You don't put your confidence in yourself. That's a disaster waiting to happen. Your confidence is in He who has served you, is serving you as your priest today. And as a result of that, there's an action that the writer tells us to perform. It's very interesting. It's pregnant language. He says that we need to draw near to the throne of grace. We know the language. We use this all the time. We say this sometimes. Let's draw near to the throne of grace together. Let's go to the throne of grace together. We know that he's talking about prayer. Okay, there. Sermon over. No. Yes, of course he's, he's talking about prayer. But I think one commentator, he helps us here. He says, quote, it means to come to God in prayer on the basis of Christ's high priestly ministry. Not on your basis. What do you have to offer? Sorry, I'm not picking on you. But what do you have to offer him? What? Your good looks? That's subjective. Your talents? They came from God. No, you draw near to the throne of grace, as he says, based on, on the basis of Christ's high priestly ministry, that is his propitiating sacrifice and present intersection. This picture is that which is typified in the Old Testament. Again, hearkening back to the picture. What is that picture of the Old Testament where the high priest would enter into that most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was placed? You remember that, right? I've taught you that. There in the center of that room is the Ark of the Covenant. And what is that Ark of the Covenant often referred to, sometimes referred to, the very throne of God on earth? The writer says, draw near to the throne. The throne where Christ is. Where He is seated there in that most holy place as the priest of His people. Spurgeon's helpful here when he says two things about this drawing near to God. First, we come in lowly reverence. It's a throne, after all, he says. This is where the King of kings and Lord of lords sits. You do not come before this king with anything other than reverence and awe for who he is and what he has done. You don't come with a flippant attitude, casual, a casual heart or mind. You come with reverence, but you still come. But you also come with joy. You know, Reformed people aren't killjoys. A bunch of frozen chosen, as I heard mentioned yesterday, and it seemed like we were as we pulled up to the church at Presbytery because it was like five degrees outside, and I was certainly one of the frozen chosen. No, we come with great joy. How sad it is to hear people pray with so little joy in their hearts. Joy not rooted in them. Joy rooted in what Christ has done. They pray as a duty. Let's get it over with so I can go on to something more important like video games and Facebook. 
the joy you must have. Why? Because the king who sits on the throne invites you to come. Do you see that there? Draw near. Draw near to him. He invites you. Come to my throne. Come here. Unburden yourself. I will listen. I am sympathetic. I will help you. He receives you as favored children. Spurgeon writes, you have no reason to come with a sense of dread. Oh no, if I go in there, I'm going to get killed. If he were to do that, he would have to disown his own son. Because of what this high priest has accomplished for you, you come rejoicing into his presence. That's why we worship the way we do. It's, I've said it a hundred times. Well, maybe not a hundred. Joyful reverence. Not a funeral. It's reverence, but it should be joyful. Two benefits then as we draw near to the throne of grace. They're right there. We know what they mean. I'm not going to belabor it. Mercy. Grace, mercy that we not, not be treated as we deserve. And how can that possibly be if the work of the high priest accomplished the justice required by a holy God? How can I get what I deserve? If he's really accomplished it, then I'm never going to get what I deserve. Because he did. He took that. He carried not only the sacrifice, but he was the sacrifice into the most holy place of which his blood was sprinkled on the throne of God. But you see, we tend to think of that in past terms. That's what I did 30 years ago when I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. No, no. This mercy is available daily, and you need it daily. You go there daily. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Give me more of your grace, the other side of this. Grace that we will receive that which is useful and needful in times of weakness. Grace which is given to me, certainly that which I don't deserve at all, but grace is mine nonetheless because of the work of the great high priest. I deserve to be rejected. You deserve to be rejected, but you aren't. You deserve to go unheard, but you are heard. You deserve to be treated as a condemned sinner, but you are not. And it's more even than that. You receive the right amount of grace to persevere, to hold on, to press on, to hold on to your profession and trust in Christ, this high priest. Now look, if this isn't comforting to you, then maybe you're not a Christian. This is what he's done. This is who he is, and this is what he has done, and this is what he gives you. All through Him, all because of Him. Now, Jesus may not be next to you in flesh and blood right now. You look around the pew, you know, I don't think Teresa thinks Jason is Jesus. And I'm sure she could tell us many reasons why not. Okay, so He's not sitting next to you. I get that. But he has skin, and he was made like you in every respect. 
He sympathizes with his people. He's once suffered. He knows what you are suffering. It's, a, it's actually an act of disbelief to say that he doesn't understand you. Now, he says he does. As one who suffered, who knows what you're suffering, it's not merely a passing nod at your concerns. It's real to him. And he pities the plight of his people. He asks them to trust him, the great high priest. If he is able to accomplish your redemption, he's able to accomplish the consummation, the resurrection from the dead, the heavenly rest he promises to all those that love him. Do you see his glory? The beauty and the majesty of the God of the universe who would take skin on that he might save me. Save you. How vitally important it is then to think on and reflect on more, not just Christ as prophet, as important as that is and necessary, but Christ as priest, high priest, the great high priest, who does indeed sympathize in all of his glory sympathize with your weakness and mine. May He give us His Spirit, more of it, more of Him, that we would find the mercy and the grace that we need all through Jesus Christ, the great High Priest. Amen.